Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's great to be back on the air, and I know it wasn't that long ago that I was on the air last with you guys, considering that it had been a while um, since I had been on the air last prior to um, a few days ago. So here we are um, once again discussing November's Fury, the Deadly Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913 by Michael Schumacher. And I must point out that we are getting uh, very, very close to the end of this uh, podcast topic. So uh, I'm sure many of you are wondering uh, how will all of this end in terms of, um, I mean, in terms of uh, what we are um, hoping to gain from all of this. But I think it's probably fair to say that um, based upon what has been discussed from uh, past uh, podcast um, segment episodes, we are learning just how um, just how dangerous uh, Mother Nature can be. We are learning that no matter how sophisticated the technology is or no matter what man's assumptions are, man sometimes will underestimate Mother Nature and Mother Nature will unleash her fury in ways not seen before. As we uh, learned from the previous podcast segment, you know, it was one thing to deal with a one- or a two-day storm, but never before had there been a four-day storm. Anything exceeding two days was just unheard of, or just not even possible, but yet it did happen. And the loss of lives were staggering. So, what is what is left to talk about that we have not already discussed? Well, I can tell you this much. In this uh, segment, we're going to learn about shipwrecks. Well, haven't we already learned that some ships um, washed ashore or, you know, debris was scattered along shore per uh, some of these, uh, not just their ships, rather, I should say, but like parts of lifeboats were scattered uh, in terms of their debris along the shore? Well, sure. But I think what's really uh, important to talk about is that over time, ships do get discovered. You know, sometimes people think, oh, when a ship sinks and it goes to the bottom of the floor, whether it's to the ocean's floor or to a Great Lakes floor, that over time it will just, um, uh, it will corrode and it will corrode to the point where it will just completely disintegrate and there will be nothing left of a ship. Well, I must say that that's not always true. I think a great example is the Titanic. Just yesterday, I was uh, watching uh, numerous documentaries on the Titanic, and, you know, even though she sank 110 years ago, we have learned so much in the last 37 years since the time uh, Dr. Robert Ballard and his crew discovered the uh, ship, thanks largely in part to having discovered one of her boilers before uh, finding the, um, the ship. Not, I mean, and we have to remember that when the Titanic sank, she didn't sink in one piece. She split on the surface in two pieces. And seeing all that um, footage on television was very powerful, uh, very surreal. And James Cameron, who uh, directed that uh, famous blockbuster movie 25 years ago, hard to believe that was a quarter of a century ago, on uh, Titanic, James Cameron said in the document, one of the documentaries that a hundred years from now, there will still be good chunks of the ship left. Some sections of the ship might not be there. And what I mean by section is not like half of the ship, but layers. Layers are uh, corroding and gradually being eaten away by, um, by what we would call uh, rusticles. But you know, given that the ship sank 110 years ago, you can see just how much wear and tear the ship has has endured, not only through means of nature, but um, but one could also say through means of uh, expeditions, where um, where we have uh, been constantly learning more and more about this ship's uh, secrets. So I think it might be fair to say that uh, in this uh, podcast segment, we're going to actually be learning about how in the decades after 1913, how um, underwater um, archaeological um, divers, uh, or I should say um, 
divers who um, have expertise in uh, taking part in um, research uh, expeditions will um, be able to um, make a difference not just for the greater awareness of um, from an educational standpoint but will be able to shed new light because for some of us or maybe I shouldn't say for some of us maybe for many of us we have to wonder yes these ships sank being eight of them on Lake Huron's uh, waters along the southern the southern shores uh, around Canada but did any of these ships ever get found underwater and if so what clues do they have they um what clues do they reveal not only about their past but about but about the present in other words is it fair to say that we might be learning about um ships and the stories they've left behind i would say so so why don't we uh start off with our first lead off question so let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready because we have a lot to cover so here we go what discovery got made in the summer of 1986 along Lake Huron's waters? Anybody want to take a guess at what discovery got made in the summer of 1986 along Lake Huron's waters? Well, it turns out that there was a team of three underwater explorers whom were currently in the midst behind searching for a tugboat that supposedly sank within the area. Gee, I who would have ever thought a tugboat sinking? Well, you know, tugboats sometimes uh, succumb to the uh, forces of Mother Nature. So it turns out that we have a team of three underwater explorers whom are in the midst of searching for a tugboat that supposedly sank. However, it turns out this uh, trio of underwater explorers did not come across the tugboat that they were looking for, but rather they uh, came upon the presence of a vessel at the bottom of the floor whose size surpassed all tugboats. This, to me, sounds like quite an impressive find. It's one thing not to be able to find what you're looking for, but if you're able to find something else that comes as a big shock or a surprise, it would be hard to, um, to, turn, uh, to turn your eye away from it. I'm wondering what this... Um, with this uh, vessel, given that this vessel is lying at the bottom floor of Lake Huron, and its size is apparently is, has surpassed all tugboats, what do you think these uh, this trio of underwater explorers could come upon? Well, it turns out that one of the explorer crewmen decided that in order to um, get a better uh, glimpse of this uh, vessel. He decided to um, put on his underwater diving gear, and he went about. Was able to go about confirming once he had gotten underwater. He was able to go about confirming exactly what kind of vessel it was. Despite seeing the first hand up close that the vessel itself laid upside down in 80 feet of water. Okay, folks, we have to remember that whenever a ship sinks and goes to the uh, bottom floor it doesn't always mean that it's going to sink peacefully it doesn't mean that it's just going to um, come down face with the bow facing uh, forward sometimes when ships sink they depending on the angle at which they um, sink depending on the angle at which the, um, the boat could be tilting all depends on how uh, the boat's going to hit the bottom floor once it makes its um, descent and it's not a light descent, folks. It's a uh, very, very rapid, it can be a very rapid descent. As a matter of fact, when the Titanic's uh, bow uh, came crashing into the floor of the North Atlantic real quick, uh, it was known uh, based upon um, various uh, search and uh, rescue, well, I wouldn't say search and rescue, but various uh, expedition dives, it was determined that the... Um, that the main hatch cover blew off immediately and we have to keep in mind that when the the titanic hit full force it was going probably well over 25 miles per hour as it was sinking to the uh, as it made its way uh, down to the bottom the most bottom of depths of the north atlantic ocean so 
the hatch cover uh, blew out immediately along with other um, along with various other elements to where they were able to now determine that there's been a huge uh, debris field of all sorts of uh, stuff, um, even uh, the bottom of her hull plates. Uh, you know, the hull is, you know, being the bottom of the ship, the whole part of the hull uh, flattened out. And I could see how when, you know, when the, um, the bow or even the stern is going so fast that there's nothing to control it when, you know, you have all this water overflowing, which happened. Because think about it, folks, you know, had the Titanic hit the iceberg straight on, only two of her water compartments would have flooded. The ship would have stayed afloat. We probably would have been looking at a whole different um, historical venue. I probably should save that topic for a whole another podcast somewhere down the road. But the bottom line is that uh, we, we do need to be reminded that whenever shipwrecks happen and ships are lying at the bottom of a floor, whether it's an ocean or a lake floor, they're not always uh, lying um, straight up. They could be lying crooked. Um, they could be um, they could be upside down. Um, that's it. All depends on the uh, elements of nature and how a, sh a ship sinks. That's a story unto itself. So, one of the um, crewmen of this underwater um, dive, his name was Wayne Brusat or Brusate. Uh, he determined that the vessel was indeed a freighter. And that it was around 250 feet in length. 250 feet long. That's uh, about an, a uh, an average size for a, a, a freighter in the early part of the 20th century. Because uh, going into 1913, the biggest of the freighters on the waters was, I believe, the Charles S. Price, which was about 524 feet long. So, Mr. Broussat saw directly in front of his own eyes that the anchor had already um, was that the anchor itself was already in a dropped position so in other words it appears as though the vessel or the freighter that he was uh, seeing firsthand had made some form of attempt to drop anchor the closer uh, Wayne Broussat got to the vessel he act he was able to accurately identify this vessel its name was none other than the Regina. Can you believe that, folks? Mr. Broussat has made history now. He has discovered one of the um, eight vessels that sank along uh, Lake Huron's southern shores in Canada from that infamous um, Great Lakes hurricane. Although coming upon the Regina wasn't the diver's primary objective, discovering the sunken freighter made possible. Okay, how did discovery? How did the discovery of this sunken freighter get made possible? I mean, we just we can't take binoculars and look down into the most uh, deepest of depths or just depths in general and say, "Oh, I think I see something." No, it actually turns out that uh, Mr. Broussat and his um, partners were able to use uh, what was called. Um, side sonar uh, scan, or rather I should say side scan sonar. Sonar equipment is um, very, very, um, has been very essential. And of course, when I think of other um, submersibles, I tend to think of what are called ROVs, remotely operated vehicles that can um, go down to the deepest of depths, uh, not only in Great Lakes waters, but perhaps even in the um, oceans, uh, most notably even with Titanic uh, when it was first discovered, Dr. Ballard and his crew uh, had used um, remote operated uh, vehicles to um, get um, to, to be able to get uh, in-depth um, studies of the ship before sending an actual team of uh, people down there, including uh, Dr. Ballard himself. So the um, side scan sonar, in case any of you all are not familiar with side scan sonar, I had to do a little uh, research on this. The purpose of the side scan sonar is designed to create images of large areas. So when we think of large areas, think of sea floors. Sea floors. Um, and then uh, side scan sonar is also used for uh, marine archaeology. Okay, vessels. 
cargoes, shoreside facilities, port-related structures, even is even going as far as detecting debris items on sea floors that are considered hazardous to shipping. So without side scan uh, sonar, think about how much would be um, missed out on in terms of um, research and also as a means of being able to prevent worst case scenario disasters from happening. If you're able to detect debris items on sea floors that could be considered hazardous to ships, you want to do whatever you can to uh, modify that problem by removing those um, dangerous debris items. Now, what did other dive expeditions to the, to the Regina's wreck site reveal? Of course, it's easy to assume that when a team of people has found a ship, that that's where it ends. No, other expeditions followed, and rightfully so. So, what did other dive expeditions to the Regina's wreck site reveal? Well, for one, a large hole had knocked out the Regina's bottom near her cargo hold. And the cargo hold, remember folks, that's in the um, middle of the um, freighter, the, uh, the large... Um, you know, the, the freighters being the large um, ships uh, that are designed to carry um, excessive amounts of uh, cargo, whereas the previous uh, ships beforehand are, um, were uh, straight deckers, rather, I should say. The, uh, the large ships prior to the straight deckers being built, the, uh, the smaller to medium-sized ships, uh, you know, they could kick, transport cargo, but nothing compared to what the straight deckers can do. So... Given that, the, given that a large hole knocked out the Regina's bottom near her cargo hold, this pretty much meant that most likely that this vessel had hit bottom in shallow waters. It, you know, it ran aground. More than likely, you know, we don't know, but it could have hit a, um, a sandbar. It could have hit um, rocks underneath. Um, anything that um, obviously would have posed a threat to a ship, but given that the storm was so bad, there's, there really was no way for the Regina to, um, to have uh, avoided, you know, hitting a sandbar or avoided any um, unforeseen object that could have, um, that ultimately uh, led to the cargo hold um, being uh, severely damaged to where this large hole um, caused um, the ship to um, hit. Um, hit bottom in shallow waters. Another, um, another factor of, that revealed some important information was that the Regina's captain, Edward McConkie, he obviously tried to seek uh, safe shelter, but given everything that was working against him, he had no other choice in ordering the anchor be dropped with the lifeboat's launch. So obviously that anchor was placed in a... Um, secure uh, position, but based upon how uh, Mr. Broussat spotted it, um, it was already in a drop position, so it would be fair to say that Captain McConkie had made um, a good conscious effort in, um, in dropping anchor as a last-ditch effort for means of survival. The storm's intensity, and rather I should say fury, had overwhelmed the Regina crew whom either drowned or died from what is from what's uh, known as hypothermia. I'm sure many of you all probably have heard of the term hypothermia before, but if for some of you um, who aren't familiar with what hypothermia is, I'll give you a brief um, interpretation. Hypothermia is if you're out in cold. It's one thing to be out in cold weather, but let's say you're out on an ice pond. And all of a sudden, the ice uh, cracks and you fall through into the water. That water is going to be very, very bone cold, very, very chilly, to the point where if you, if you are struggling to stay afloat, you may only have minutes to live. So the longer you are exposed to cold weather, the greater the likelihood that you might not uh, survive. And it's not just by means of falling, it's not so much by means of, uh, of uh, ice cracking on a pond and falling into the water, but in this case, the crew of the Regina were probably thrown off their ship 
largely in part because of the um, of the waves. The waves, you know, these waves had to have been at least between 30 and 50 feet high. So if you're being thrown off your ship because of uh, rogue waves of that si of that caliber size, and the longer you're out on the water, given how drastically uh, temperatures had changed from being unseasonably warm to drastically cold, hypothermia will set in over a short period of time. So, therefore, the lo long-term exposure to cold weather will result in um, a very, very um, quick death. And real evidence was proven in the days after the storm when two men were found frozen in a Regina lifeboat. So it is fair to say that there was there there more than likely was some attempt on the part of uh, crewmen from the Regina to get into a lifeboat. But by the time some but by the time these two men got into the lifeboat, they probably had already been exposed to so much cold that they um, that they really didn't have any means of um, being able to seek warmth. And whatever little warmth they had, it obviously wasn't enough, sadly, to where they lost their life. So I can't imagine um, stumbling upon this um, lifeboat and seeing um, men. Um, found frozen to death. It's a very surreal thing. Uh, what other discovery led to new debates about life jacket accessibility? I'm sure some of you are thinking right now, why does life jacket um, accessibility, why, why does that carry any meaning? Well, think about it. You know, if you are thrown off your ship, wouldn't you you know, you get thrown off your ship, sometimes you don't have time to um, be able to run prior to getting thrown off your ship and get access to a life jacket. But if there are, but if the life jackets get thrown off the ship and you see one in the water, then yes, make every effort to try to get access to it. But the reason why I talk about it here was because um, it was determined in the days after the storm had subsided that um, a crewman from one of the other boats, being the Charles S. Price, whom didn't make it, he wore a life jacket that belonged to the Regina. This man, uh, his name, well, he was a chief engineer of the Charles S. Price, but he was found to have worn a life jacket belonging to the Regina. How is that possible that someone from another boat got access to someone else's uh, life jacket from another boat? Well, I mean, it's very fair to say that, there, that obviously theft is not the issue here. But the problem here was that the Regina lied well northeast of the price. So um, Michael Schumacher mentioned uh, a theory. This theory, the theory he mentioned is the following, in that one theory was that the Regina more than likely sank first. But prior to her sinking surviving Regina crewmen might have helped Charles S. Price survivors aboard, that is, perhaps aboard the, aboard the lifeboats. However, heavy seas interfered to the point where it sadly became a battle for every man, for every man's life, for every man himself. So in other words, the elements of nature are so powerful to where they can carry where, to where Mother Nature can carry a boat in any direction she wants, even if it means sending 30 to 50 foot waves over the railing, uh, sending men off the, the ship and having to uh, fend for their lives and knowing that there's not a whole lot of time um, left to, um, that time is very fragile. So, yes, it could very well have been possible that these ships... Um, that these ships were in the vicinity of, even though the Regina lied well northeast of the price, but given that the circumstances of the weather had played out, it's very possible that they could have met somewhere within proximity to where, um, to where uh, the Regina crewmen were helping those of the Charles S. Price survivors aboard. But as the Regina crew uh, endured further um, complications uh, the Charles S. Price uh, crewmen 
it really was a matter of uh, one one crew being in charge, and then all the second and a second later, the, the next crew was in charge. It, I can't only imagine just um, how scary this must have been, knowing that here you are trying to help other crewmen, and all of a sudden you're getting uh, swept away, and all of a sudden. You, you just don't know who's in charge anymore. It's not a question of nobody not wanting to be in charge. It's just knowing that Mother Nature is taking over to where to where being able to run a um, or rather to rather I should say to coordinate a uh, a uh, rescue mission in terms of helping others stranded along these waters is unable to go um, as planned. But then again, uh, whenever these storms happen, nothing is ever certain, especially in the month of November, when the skies of November turn gloomy. It is very likely in the midst of the storm to have had victims from the Regina and the Charles S. Price found side by side or right near one another, which can make for a plausible theory behind Charles S. Price's chief engineer getting access to a Regina life jacket. So think about it. If you have men whom have, I don't know if I would say men who've passed away, but if if there are crewmen who've passed away, but life jackets are, um, if life jackets weren't used by other people, then for this chief engineer to be able to get access to one, you better uh, make the most of it while you can with with whatever uh, chances you have for survival. Now, a fellow by the name of David G. Brown, who is a Great Lakes historian, he proposed um, a theory behind the Price and Regina's interactions along Lake Huron, which in his eyes were considered to be dramatic. Mr. Brown believed that the Regina sank first, but before her sinking, the crewmen went about boarding lifeboats. But the storm's path sent the lifeboats south to where the Regina crew encountered the Charles S. Price's team. Crewmen from the Price saw Regina lifeboats and tried a rescue attempt only to be caught in a trough. And remember what a trough is, folks? It's the lowest point of the wave cycle. Even though it may be the lowest point of the wave cycle, it doesn't mean that it's just it's going to stay weak. The crest is the, the top part of the wave cycle, but if the waves are just right, between 30 and 50 feet high, yeah, the trough is going to, um, is going to um, yield some form of... Um, and yield some major form of um, inflicting damage that's going to be um, very, very bad. So the crewmen get tossed off their... Mr. Brown believes that um, once, the, uh, once having been caught in the trough, being the lowest point of the wave cycle, it led to the crewmen getting tossed off their vessel. The Regina survivors now were seen as rescuers... But despite their best efforts, Mother Nature won out, resulting in crewmen's bodies from both vessels being washed ashore. Although this is a, um, a good theory, I wouldn't question it, but the outcome still remains an overall mystery. Now uh, we're going to talk about uh, ships. Well, we've already been talking about ships, but what I guess what I mean is by uh, what else can we talk about here with regards to ships? We need to know what kinds of things ships possess once they have um, succumbed to the uh, elements of Mother Nature. In other words, when they sink to the bottom, what should their state be? In other words, do the, do the ships that sink, that sadly perish, for one, they shouldn't be forgotten, but two, are they considered um, sacred grounds? Yes. So this next question is the following. Can ships whom have wrecked and gone on to sink in Great Lakes waters possess their own levels of dignity and spirit? Dignity uh, being um, level of respect, 
Spirit meaning, you know, keeping the, the presence alive. Remembering those whom came before you. Remembering those who made the ultimate sacrifice. Remembering those whom weren't so fortunate and lost their lives along the waters and went down with the ship. Well, I think it's fair to say that the answer is yes. Any ship, no matter how its condition stands at the bottom of Great Lakes floors, is entitled to rest in peace. Okay? By resting in peace, what do you think that should mean? Not to be disturbed. In other words, there shouldn't be any looters going down to the bottom of um, Lake Huron and stealing valuables or stealing stuff that um, that still um, lies intact with the ship. You know, uh, as I talked about from the previous uh, podcast segment, I'm sure many of you all were very, very stunned and shocked by the fact that back in 1913, there were uh, people, bystanders, who were um, ignorant enough Rather, I should say thieves and looters who were ignorant enough to go as far as um, stealing um, a deceased crewman's pocket watch, money, a wedding band. I mean, if anybody didn't think that was crazy, then all I can say is something's probably not right with that individual. But to me, it's one thing to retrieve a relic from a ship. But I think it would be fair to say that you would want to have the consent of the deceit of the uh, relatives who whom lost their loved one or their loved ones, as, as a matter of fact. So, yes, the answer is yes that any ship, no matter how its condition stands at the bottom of the lake floors, is entitled to rest in peace with as minimal disturbance as possible. But if a ship were to be stumbled upon by marine divers or underwater archaeologists then it's fair to conclude that just maybe the vessel herself will be ready for outside observation, those from the outside coming in to, uh, to observe this ship, to see firsthand how the ship has um, withered since the time of her sinking, including revelations of the ship's own past secrets. You know, as I mentioned earlier about um, about Mr. Um, Broussat, he and his um, other two uh, colleagues, their mission uh, was not, they didn't think, I mean, it was just one of those fluke things that, um, that they stumbled upon, being the Regina. Their mission was to find a tugboat. Even though they didn't find the tugboat, maybe somebody else did, I'm not sure, but the fact that they came across the Regina... That's a, a huge find onto itself. It really was. You know, there does remain a belief, and uh, Michael Schumacher noted this, and, I, and I, after reading about it, it is true. There remains a belief, one that's long-standing. But, but what I mean by long-standing is that it could be well over 100 years Maybe it's a, a long-standing belief that's been in existence in the years after 1679 when Robert LaSalle's uh, vessel, uh, the Le Griffon, uh, sank along the waters of Lake Erie. Uh, even though he did not um, lose his life, he wasn't um, on that um, journey back to um, France uh, for, um, sh for um, shipping uh, fur pelts, beaver fur pelts, that is. But it might be fair to say that even after 1679, there probably did remain a belief like there is today that w that's longstanding where um, sailors and underwater explorers hold dear to their hearts that shipwrecks must be seen as being sacred. In other words, wreckage sites aren't to be, are not to be discovered until the vessel itself is ready to welcome those searching for her. In other words, if people want to search for a ship, they need to have a purpose. They need to, they need to go before um, a board. They need to go before, um, before the uh, what do you call it? Before the uh, families to say, "Hey, we would like to learn more about why this ship sank." 
We would like to be able to try to find the ship. We want to know what its condition is in. We want to know how it has fared since the time it sank X number of years ago. But one must keep in mind, too, that when you are going down to, um, to explore a ship, just know that you could encounter stuff that's very unexpected. And uh, I give this as an example. Um, when um, back in the early 90s, um, there, uh, as technology had improved, there were uh, dives to the Edmund Fitzgerald. And many of you who um, have been with me since uh, June of 2020, who were with me when we talked about the Edmund Fitzgerald, one of the uh, divers and his team stumbled upon a, um, a skeleton. He wanted to go as far as trying to see if uh, the remains could be identified if the skeleton was brought up. But, it, it, but his proposal enraged um, victims' uh, families. Why should victims' families have to relive the pain that, um, that had been brought upon them years ago, knowing that their loved ones died on the night of November 10th of 1975 uh, when the Fitzgerald uh, sank? But it should be a reminder that, um, that if you stumble upon a, a dead person at the, at the utmost depths of the lake floor, don't go near the, the body. Yes, it might be um, scary, but at least respect the body and know that that person is resting peacefully, that person is being looked after by God, but that person, um, that person has a story to tell. In other words, that person made the ultimate sacrifice along with his other crewmen whom perished by doing, by doing a job that wasn't meant for everyone by by going out there one more time with the hopes of getting a bonus with the hopes of helping out the company only to come away um, losing your life because we have to keep in mind folks that um, for many of these uh, crewmen whom died not only in 1913 but in the years before 1913, many of them didn't come home alive, but it was a risk they were willing to take because the water to them was sacred ground. And it was a, a tradition that had been uh, followed uh, from even from past generations. Being along the waters of the Great Lakes represents uh, identity. It represents a, a strong standing of uh, purpose and commitment. So... I truly do understand and respect why the belief that this uh, belief that's been firmly um, held steadfast by sailors and underwater explorers is that shipwrecks are to be seen as sacred, that the wreckage sites aren't to be discovered until the vessel is ready to welcome those. Just because a ship sank, sinks, it doesn't mean you, you just go right away and conduct a, a dive. Give it time. Let the families, um, the victims of the families, grieve. But if, a, if an expedition's going to happen, get the consent of the families. And long story short, with Edmund Fitzgerald, the original bell was brought up. And a, and a new bell was placed at the bottom of Lake Superior. The Fitzgerald sank on Lake Superior's Canadian side, right, just 10 miles um at least 10 to 20 miles from Whitefish Point on the eastern end of uh, Lake Superior. That's where her um, her eventual destination, I think, was Detroit, Michigan, but she, um, but she sadly never made it, obviously, but she wasn't too far from Whitefish Point. But um, only three relics have been um, from the Fitzgerald um, are um, available to see at the Whitefish Point Museum. The original bell a lifeboat that did wash ashore. And I can't remember the other one. It might either be a life jacket, but um, but it's uh, one other um, item. Only three items from the Fit, from the Fitzgerald um, are available to see. So just because we uh, go to a wreckage site, it doesn't mean we take everything that that's there. I think that's a lesson that needs to be reminded more often. 
no matter how many years go by from the time a um, ship or a vessel first sinks, the greater the sunken vessel's legend increases, meaning all maritime enthusiasts will go to great lengths in keeping a lost vessel's spirit alive and perhaps becoming part of something bigger, like a dive expedition mission. Has history proven that discoveries of sunken ships been ones whose outcomes were positive? I would like to say yes, and the answer to me should be yes, especially when it involves finding a vessel that many people before had failed to locate, even with the most recent up-to-date technology. So, you know, we should keep in mind, folks, that even no matter how sophisticated our technology is, sometimes even the most up-to-date technology does not always detect something that has um, not been able to have been located from decades past. It turns out that the Wexford, which was one of the eight ships that perished along Lake Huron, had been a constant topic of discussion since the time she first sank. One claim was made by a man whom said he saw the Wexford's masts extend out from the water's surface. A tugboat crew... Um, went about investigating the matter, and they did confirm seeing that the Wexford's mass, along with the portion of her deck, got um, was spotted out above the water six miles south of Goderich, Ontario. Even if, if this was true, the Wexford would have sunk fast, but prior to her sinking, she remained afloat via dangling near the surface, only to disappear before a complete thorough investigation got conducted. So just because a ship sinks, it doesn't mean it sinks right away and it's gone forever. Sometimes, um, depending on how a ship um, falters or how a ship, um, you know, ships have a mind of their own, but sometimes if they could be dangling upside down before they finally go to the bottom of the floor. In the decades after the Wexford sank, uh, there had been multiple attempts. Um, multiple attempts had been launched that resulted in coming up short. Until August 15th, 2000, 22 years ago, next, come next month, when the vessel herself got discovered by a fellow named Mr. Don Chalmers, whom was fishing on his boat only to come upon something big along Lake Huron's floor with the use of a fish finder device. I was going to say, without a device of that, of that kind of sophistication, there's no way in the world that Mr. Chalmers would have been able to um, detect um, what he ended up uh, being able to uh, locate, which was an amazing find. He went over the object um, with his boat on multiple, on many other multiple instances on this uh, particular day, because he really wanted to see for himself what what truly lied um, at the bottom, with the assistance of his device. Mr. Chalmers determined that what he was going over, or what was the object that was well below. It was more than 200 feet long. And yes, Mr. Chalmers was a big fisherman. He was also an experienced wreck diver. So obviously he knew what he was doing. He went about partnering up with some other divers. And they were able to confirm that the Wexford lied 75 feet below Lake Huron's surface. He was part of a diver trio that confirmed the sunken vessel was in fact the Wexford. The vessel stood upright with the bow pointed towards the shore. The ship was found to be in great condition after having sunk 87 years earlier. That's pretty amazing when you can find a ship still in great condition even after 87 uh, years. Despite the loss and... It, you know, and many of you, many of us are thinking, okay, if the ship's in great condition, I we would have to think that a lot of other features are still there. Well, it turns out that the pilot house, the masts, the smokestack, and the hatch covers were no are no longer there. They probably were. Um, they they probably um, deteriorated over time, 
or depending on how fast the ship went down, some of those uh, features like a hatch cover and a smokestack probably um, tore off the vessel very, very uh, rapidly after it had hit um, bottom. Uh, especially kind of like the same way with the Titanic when her bow forcefully hit the ground of the North Atlantic her uh, hatch covers uh, her her uh, hatch cover um, on the bow side blew off immediately the search exploration did determine also that the rudder was gone but yet the bow anchors remained in place but um, but looking over from bow to stern, ultimately re revealed what the Wexford went through in her final hours. You know, yes, it's one thing to have a ship in good, con in great condition, given that you know she's standing upright with the bow pointed towards the shore. But it doesn't mean that other uh, features have shown their effects. So, from the bow to the stern. Whatever uh, was detected and whatever was uh, confirmed, it, it revealed what the Wexford went through in her final hours. This ought to serve as a stark reminder of man's battle with nature, where he doesn't always survive to come home alive and live for another shipping season along Great Lakes waters. You know, yes, it's one thing for these ships to rest peacefully, but even their presence underwater yes, does serve as a reminder about their battles with Mother Nature and that not all ships survive and not all of the crewmen, if crewmen do survive, that's, um, that's wonderful. You would always want, if you have a crew of 20, you would hope that maybe 10 would survive in a, um, in a terrible um, ordeal such as a, a storm but there's no guarantee that even half of your crew would survive. Sometimes um, only two or three men survive out of, say, a crew of 24. Those of you who were with me when we talked about the Carl D. Bradley, only two men survived, Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming. Uh, Elmer Fleming died in 1969. Frank Mays died last year. He was just shy of 90 years old. And yet he lived long enough to, to tell his story. He lived long enough to not let what happened to him destroy his ability to do so many other good deeds in life. So for those whom survive, yes, they can live for another shipping season. But yet they must do everything they can to keep their fellow brothers and comrades whom perished before them. They must do everything they can to honor and keep their spirits alive. It should be also worth pointing out that the Wexford's discovery helped mark the end to a mystery that had endured for seven decades, along with bringing some form of closure towards a chapter in history who, where the storm, where a storm beyond epic proportions had destroyed multiple vessels, including taking the lives of nearly 250 sailors. You know, uh, with time, wounds heal, or, you know, with time comes some form of closure. I do find it amazing that, um, that some of these ships had been discovered, and yet the irony to it was that these discoveries were unintentional, but yet, to me, they could have been seen as acts of God. Largely in part because um, when we come upon something like this, it's up to us to remember not only those whom lost their lives, but to reflect on the past and realize what elements these men were going up against. Not just so much with Mother Nature, but knowing that what they were doing work-wise was a part of the risk they were taking. Think of these men almost as if they were in the military. They're putting their own lives out on the line, not only to deliver just you know cargo to businesses, but in some instances delivering cargo and freight to islands, remote islands, where people who inhabit those islands need supplies 
to last them through the entire winter season. So uh, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be uh, discussing the epilogue of November's Fury, the Great Lakes Hurricane of 1913. Hard to believe that we will be coming upon the epilogue. This has been a great ride. And, you know, even as I've probably said before, I've visited uh, three of the five Great Lakes, Erie, Ontario, and Michigan. And while, yes, I know I've uh, discussed, I've done two other podcast topics on the uh, Fitzgerald and the, Bra- and the uh, Carl Bradley, we must keep in mind that these shipwrecks are significant. They have stories to tell. People's lives are altered by these um, events. But one thing we should keep in mind that even with the most advanced of technology, there is good news to report in that um, it's been forty in that it's been uh, forty-seven years since we've last had a, a tragedy on Great Lakes waters. The last one being the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald from November tenth of nineteen seventy-five. So man has come a long way in 47 years with better sophisticated technology and getting from point A to point B on Great Lakes waters through via navigation. However, we must also be reminded that no matter how sophisticated our technology is, Mother Nature will always have the final say. So no matter how, no matter how far we go, We must never underestimate Mother Nature, because even she, too, can unleash her fury in ways not seen before, not only from the past, but in the present and the future. Thank you for your time, as always. I look forward to being back on the air with you all, and uh, and again, when I'm on the air again next, we will be discussing the epilogue of this uh, great uh, topic series. Thank you again for being ardent listeners. Without you all, I'm not sure where I would be, but I have you all to thank. Take care and stay safe.